Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. Purvis Payne has spent the last 34 years on death row in Tennessee for a double murder in Millington in 1987. Ironically, COVID-19 might be the reason he's no longer there. He was supposed to be executed on December 3, 2020, but on November 6 of that same year, all executions in Tennessee were suspended due to the pandemic. That delay allowed Payne's attorneys to pursue several legal angles geared towards permanently removing him from death row. Back in 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to execute a prisoner who lives with an intellectual disability. However, more recently, the Tennessee Supreme Court subsequently declared there to be no legal mechanism for existing death row prisoners with an intellectual disability to challenge their sentences in Tennessee. The court punted the issue to state lawmakers instead. Surprisingly, the legislature came through with a rare bipartisan victory. The chair of the Tennessee Black Caucus of State Legislatures, Representative G.A. Hardaway of Memphis, filed a bill last November that would create a process for such claims to be presented in court, enabling Mr. Payne and others to present their intellectual disability claims. In April of this year, both chambers of the Tennessee legislature passed bipartisan legislation to modernize the state's intellectual disability law and prevent the unconstitutional execution such as Payne's. And in May, Governor Lee signed the bill into law. Shortly thereafter, Attorneys for Mr. Payne filed a petition under the new procedure in Shelby County Criminal Court, stating that Mr. Payne, as a person with an undisputed diagnosis of intellectual disability, is categorically barred from execution. And finally, just last month, a Shelby County judge vacated Payne's death sentences and replaced them with two life sentences, with a hearing scheduled for Monday, December 13th, just days after this podcast is published, to determine whether they will run concurrently or consecutively. Our very own FedEx professor of law, Daniel Keel, has been involved with this case at various points in its journey over the years, from his days in private practice to his time as a law professor and scholar. When Payne's case went to the Supreme Court in 1991 on a technical criminal procedure question about sentencing, he was represented by attorneys at Birch Porter and Johnson in Memphis. When Professor Keel started working at Birch Porter early on in his career, the firm was still affiliated with the case and assigned Keel to handle a request to pursue DNA testing for pain under a newly enacted statute that enabled convicted defendants to get DNA testing if it might impact their conviction. Keel argued the case at the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals in 2007, but sadly came up unsuccessful. However, he continued to follow the case over the years, and when Payne's execution date was set in early 2020, he was put back in touch with the current legal team. Throughout the summer and fall of 2020, Keel worked on scholarship about the unusual constitutional position into which the Payne case fell, dealing with his intellectual disability and his status on death row. He went on to publish several pieces raising awareness of this situation as part of a larger campaign to get the previously mentioned statute passed and fill the gap between the U.S. Supreme Court's decision and the implementation of it in Tennessee. As the legislature considered that statute, 
He also testified in front of the House committee considering the bill. And as we've mentioned earlier, the statute eventually passed, resulting in Payne's removal from death row. Professor Keel joined us for this episode of Show Cause to talk a bit about the history of the case, its long and winding road to where it is today, and his involvement in it over the years. With the next part of Payne's legal proceedings taking place just days after this podcast is released, it's a timely listen. I hope you'll enjoy it. This is Show Cause. All right. Thanks for joining me today, Professor Keel. Um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about your history with this case involving Purvis Payne. And um, it's been in the news a lot lately for a lot of recent developments. But I think one of the more interesting aspects that came up in conversation with you was your involvement um, in private practice with this case. And then as it evolved over the years, you've become involved with it again. So if you could kind of give us a little brief overview of uh, the case and its origins, and then kind of go into how you were involved in it, um, I think it'd be a good place to start. Sure. So the case has its origins in the late 1980s. It is a um, double murder case here in Shelby County. The trial occurred at a time when I was in elementary school So I certainly wasn't involved in any meaningful way at that point of the case. Um, But around that time, one of the issues that the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court was dealing with was with regard to the death penalty was the issue of what kind of evidence might be used in sentencing. And they had a decision in the late 80s Uh, that said certain types of evidence presented by surviving victims could not be presented in an argument that a a convicted defendant should get the death penalty. And maybe I should go back and note that um, Purvis Payne is the defendant in this case. He was convicted of two murders. Um, There was also an attempted murder charge and conviction for a third individual, a, a young child who survived. And there was testimony after his conviction in the phase of the trial in which he was sentenced to death. um, There was testimony that used the perspective of that surviving child. And that's what the subject of the uh, of the sort of original iteration of this case up to the Supreme Court was. And so at that time, there was the conviction, there was the death sentence, there were appeals of various things, but one particular topic that was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court was on this use of victim impact testimony in the death sentence. And at the um, Supreme Court, Purvis Payne was represented by lawyers from Birch Porter and Johnson here in Memphis. It was Brooke Lathram, Les Jones, Todd Rose that were the lawyers that argued that, that briefed and argued that case at the Supreme Court. And um, they ended up actually losing. And uh, the Supreme Court made new law uh, in, in the case, in Purvis Payne's case, that allowed for this kind of victim impact testimony to be included in the death sentence phase of, of trial. And so all of that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, at Birch Porter and, uh, you know, and here in Shelby County. When I moved back to Memphis, my first job as a lawyer was at Birch Porter. 
And the lawyers there had stayed in touch with Mr. Payne um, through various cycles of appeal in the 90s and in the early 2000s. And in 2001, the Tennessee legislature had allowed for DNA testing of any item that had not yet been tested previously. And I should also note that though convicted, Purvis Payne has maintained his innocence throughout, um, throughout this appeals journey and um, has sought to utilize every avenue available to him to challenge his conviction um, and also to challenge his eligibility for execution. And so when Tennessee passed the statute allowing for DNA testing in the early 2000s, this was mostly done because there had been these very well publicized instances of DNA testing um, exonerating people who were on death row. And um, Tennessee, like many other states, with the new technology that was available at that time for DNA testing, uh, allowed for individuals like Mr. Payne to sort of go backwards and get new things tested, get things tested that hadn't been tested before. And so when I took my position at Birch Porter, the lawyers were still involved with Mr. Payne, and um, they asked me to sort of work on the petition for DNA testing. And so I did not, my, my work was not typically in the criminal area, but this was uh, something that I found really fascinating and interesting. And um, so I took that project on in my, you know, in my early professional career. Um, so what happened as you took that on, you went to the court of appeals. Um, yeah. So and argued so, before that. Yeah. So what happened in the case, what, you know, what happens in these kinds of cases is you go back to the trial court and the standard we had to prove was that, um, first that the, that the DNA testing request was not for the purposes of delaying anything. And second, to show that a positive result from the DNA testing would change the outcome of the case. And so we went to the trial court and um, there were several items of ed evidence that had not been tested. In fact, no items of evidence had been tested. Uh, there were several items of evidence that our theory was if it turned out to have the DNA of a third party of someone else, that that would go towards um, aligning with Purvis Payne's continued testimony uh, that he was not the person who had committed this crime. In addition, um, there was, yeah, so that was the theory at the trial court, but the trial court judge determined, no, mm -hmm. uh, this was something, there was so much evidence against Mr. Payne that even had there been DNA evidence of someone else, it would not have been enough to lead to the conclusion that he wouldn't, would not have been uh, tried, or that he would not have been convicted, or that he would not have been sentenced to death. Um, and so we appealed that. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we requested um, permission to appeal in an expedited manner, because um, there was concern that if we didn't get it expedited, that um, Mr. Payne might actually be executed before mm -hmm. it was heard. And um, so, yeah, I was given the opportunity to argue at the Tennessee Court of Criminal, Ape Criminal Appeals uh, on Mr. Mr. Payne's behalf in order to argue for what the statute had asked, had, had allowed for, which mm. was the testing of evidence that would be consistent with his claims of innocence and that 
um, I believed would have at least given pause to the idea that we would sentence someone to death. Um, you know, the, the death penalty is something that exists in our state. Um, and, you know, my position is if it's going to exist, then it should only be implemented when there's certainty. And so um, I was, in addition to sort of the strict legal parts that I was arguing, you know, that was the sort of theme of what I was arguing was mm-hmm. why not be more certain? Um, why not be as certain as we possibly can be that this person who has been convicted um, and sentenced to death is the right person? Mm-hmm. So while that ultimately didn't prove successful in that part of the case, I know that as the years went along and somewhat recently, I guess another U.S. Supreme Court ruling kind of came into play as we go into the next evolution of his phase of his case. Um, and that involved uh, his his intellectual disability claims, correct? Um, what? How did that go from a U.S. Supreme Court ruling and to influence his case here in Tennessee? And I know there was kind of an interesting uh, journey from that happened at the federal level, but then at the state level, it had to move through several phases before it could be implemented. Um, yeah. If you can, can you can you go into it a little bit because I know it seems to be kind of be a a, a winding journey and several things kind of had to happen at the, the federal state. And I guess also political levels to make, make an influence, make an impact on the case to where it is today. Absolutely. Um, it's truly a labyrinth of a case. Yeah. Um, the timelines of Mr. Payne's case alongside the timelines of the changes in both state and federal law with regard to the execution of individuals with disabilities they line up in such a way that there was a real danger in 2020 that Purvis Payne was going to be executed and that his execution would be unconstitutional by the then existing standards for uh, under the Eighth Amendment for cruel and unusual punishment. So let me just go backwards a little bit in this. At the time of Mr. Payne's conviction in the late 1980s, it was permissible under the Eighth Amendment to execute an individual with intellectual disabilities. So in the the 1970s, there was a brief moment where the Eighth Amendment was interpreted in a way that the death penalty was unconstitutional, that it was cruel and unusual punishment. That was very brief. And then in the late 70s, states um, figured out ways to constitutionally implement the death penalty. And in the 40 years since uh, what has been happening have been um, has been challenges to certain types of implementation of the death penalty. So, for example, the implementation of the death penalty against individuals convicted as juveniles has been determined to be unconstitutional. And another area um, where this is so is with individuals with intellectual disabilities. And so at the time in the late 80s, though, of Mr. Payne's conviction and sentencing, it was constitutional to execute an individual with intellectual disabilities. Um, Through the 90s, this was still the case, even though, um, well, let me back up. In the 90s, states, including Tennessee, and Tennessee was actually on the early end of this, began to implement new statutes 
that made it unconstitutional or not unconstitutional that made it unlawful to sentence an individual with intellectual disability to death. So this was a statute that was passed after Mr. Payne's conviction and it was not made retroactive. So no person with an intellectual disability could be executed um, moving forward or could be sentenced to execution moving forward, but it did nothing for people like Mr. Payne who had been sentenced already. And so he had never really brought a claim for intellectual disability um, yet because it really wasn't a terribly helpful claim for him to have brought in 1988 and through the 90s. Um, even though there were attempts to make that new statute retroactive, it had, it had the Tennessee Supreme Court had said no. Um, then in 2002, well, in, then in 2001, the Tennessee Supreme Court said, not only is it unlawful under this new statute to sentence individuals with intellectual disabilities to death, it actually is unconstitutional under the Tennessee Constitution to execute an individual with an intellectual disability. So that meant that individuals who were on death row who might have claims of intellectual disability could bring a new action and uh, claiming that they were ineligible to be put to death. And so this is in 2001. And in 2002, the federal Supreme Court followed and said under the federal constitution, under the Eighth Amendment, uh, this is a case called Atkins versus Virginia, mm -hmm. the execution of individuals with intellectual disabilities is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And so that's in 2002. However, and so there was actually a period where um, under Tennessee law, there's a when there's a change in law like this, mm -hmm. there's a one-year period in which individuals can bring claims. And so it opened that statute of limitations for Mr. Payne and anyone else who sort of fell into that same category. However, at the time that this statute of limitations opened, there was a definition of intellectual disability that relied almost exclusively on IQ scores. And IQ scores above 70 could be um, determinative that the person did not have an intellectual disability. And this was actually kind of counter to the um, psychological expertise that said uh, a score should not be sort of used determinatively mm -hmm. in this way, but rather it should be part of a broader record of an individual's uh, intellectual capacities. But through the 2000s, the standard in law in Tennessee and in, in federal law and in many other states as well was that the score was still the, the most important thing. And there had been several tests done of Mr. Payne earlier in his life. And um, three of those four tests produced IQ scores above 70. And so though he thought that, or though his legal team thought he might be someone who qualified as an individual with intellectual disability, the evidence, the proof was really against him um, because of this 70 score, 70 right. point right. score bar. And so again, so he's still, and this is all happening sort of alongside the DNA testing. And so he kind of focused his efforts on the kind of situation like I was working on, on the DNA testing, things mm -hmm. that would prove innocence because intellectual disability would not prove innocence. It would not get him, uh, get his conviction revoked. It would, it would merely 
adjust his sentence from death's death penalty to life without parole. Mm -hmm. And so all of his efforts were focused on uh, obtaining additional evidence um, and uh, obtaining DNA testing and other kinds of things that would corroborate his his claims of, of innocence. And I should also note, I don't know whether he is guilty or innocent. As I mentioned, I was very young at the time. I wasn't involved in the trial uh, in any sort of way. Um, my involvement has been in these post-conviction appeals phases of his case, um, where I actually don't think his guilt or innocence matters to the point that I am making, you know, on, on his behalf. With the DNA testing, for example, the point was to determine, uh, to, to get these, this testing done to determine, you know, whether or not there's guilt or innocence there. And if the DNA turned out not to be in his favor, then that would be more information than we had before. Right. That. You're examining the laws and the things that go into determining his guilt or innocence, not his actual guilt or innocence, right? Exactly. Right. So, you know, it's, it's really a, a point that if we are going to implement the death penalty, then we should exhaust do the yeah. that we need to do in order to ensure that we're doing it the, the, the way that is consistent with the law. So um, I'm describing this labyrinth in which his timeline and the timeline of the changes in laws just doesn't work. Right. It, it's, right. You can see that consistently over time, it has not been possible for him to bring a claim of intellectual disability that would make the case that he was actually constitutionally um, ineligible for execution. And so um, in 2000, in the, in the 2010 to 2014 range, mm -hmm. Tennessee state law first again, and then the federal law again, um, starts to recognize this gap in evidence. And they say a cut score of 70 cannot on its own be a bar to someone being determined to be intellectually dis disabled. And rather we need a much more holistic view of the evidence to determine someone's functional IQ, which is different than the IQ that would show up just on a, on a score. And mm -hmm. so, um, so there's, this move toward being more inclusive of more evidence and that the cut score itself would not be itself a barrier to someone being deemed ineligible for execution. So this happens in, um, like I said, the first half of the 2000 teens. And um, Mr. Payne now has some law in his favor. Right. He has some evidence that's in his favor. He has some law that has evolved. Uh, the understanding of intellectual disability has evolved. Uh, the understanding of the Eighth Amendment has evolved. And so finally, he reaches this point where it makes sense for him to bring a claim that he is intellectually disabled and therefore ineligible to be executed. And so he does this in Tennessee state court in the maybe 2016 range. And it went through the uh, appeals courts in Tennessee, and the appeals courts determined that there is no reason that Tennessee should be executing individuals with intellectual disability 
but there also is no procedural mechanism for a person with an intellectual disability in Mr. Payne's circumstance to make that argument. So, the, so, so it so it, it was established that it was against federal law and that the state of Tennessee had no interest in executing a person with intellectual disabilities, but then they're stuck. There's, there's basically no, there's no way to reach the finish line is, is what you're saying. There's no means to, to put forth that he is in these applicable circumstances. Exactly. And in fact, the arguments from the state at the time of this case were not, he isn't intellectually disabled. The arguments were, this is the wrong procedural mechanism to argue that he is intellectually disabled. And so, um, and the Tennessee Supreme Court says, we don't know whether he's intellectually disabled or not, but we agree with the state here that this is not the right procedural mechanism for doing so. And they kind of punted to the General Assembly to say, fill this gap, fill Mm -hmm. this hole. And it's probably worth noting that through this period, execution in Tennessee was very unusual. I think from 1977 through 2017, there were only six individuals who were actually executed, despite um, dozens on death row. In 2017, Tennessee began to pick up its pace of executions. And so the sort of urgency of the gap became much more significant because there were these people on death row, Purvis Payne being the most um, well-known of them, who might be constitutionally ineligible, who the Tennessee Supreme Court had said the state had no business executing, but yet did not have the right key to get their evidence put before anyone. And so um, this became even more urgent in 2020, early 2020, when Mr. Payne's execution date was set for later that year. And at that time, there was, you know, there was starting to be this building chorus of not only a push for the DNA, an addition, a new push for DNA testing, um, which took place, you know, those arguments took place in 2020 as well, but also a, a growing chorus about this potential real travesty of executing someone who is constitutionally ineligible to be, to be executed because of intellectual disability. Um, but there was, there was no just mechanism to, it was just striking out every door you knocked on um, was, would not allow the evidence to make its way into court. And so um, his execution was uh, stayed for a period as a result of the pandemic. And that allowed for um, several state legislators to sort of recognize the urgency of the situation and begin the process of uh, amending state law to, um, to allow the case to be made that this mm-hmm. person should not, be, uh, should not be executed. And so during that building of that chorus, um, Purvis Payne's current legal team reached back out to me. They, I had sort of stayed abreast of what was going on through the process, even if I wasn't directly involved. And they said, um, you know, we're looking for, um, you know, ways to sort of 
push this, make, make it seem how urgent this is, mm-hmm. um, that this is actually a situation in which we might just due to lack of a mechanism to make the argument that he's intellectually disabled, our state might actually unconstitutionally execute somebody. Um, and so I wrote several articles on this topic. Um, and then in um, the spring of 2021, when the legislature was considering the bills, there were several bills that were um, sort of working their way through the legislature. Um, I, I was able to testify at the um, at the General Assembly uh, just to provide some, some of this story, some of this um, real labyrinth of unfortunate timeline for individuals like Mr. Payne uh, to sort of build the case that the statute was necessary and was important. So your scholarship, did it, it pretty much focus on the intellectual disability claims and the unconstitutionality of the execution of, of people that fall within those? Or um, what was your focus with, with the writings that you did around this? Yes, my focus on the writings was all on the intellectual disability topic. At the same time, there were efforts being made, like I said, to get additional DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a big push right now um, for some you know, claims of his actual innocence um, in this case, but my work was focused on the question of intellectual disability. Um, I, was, I w- was also gonna, gonna note um, that the DNA testing that I failed to get ordered mm-hmm. back in 2007. You know, I lived with that for, for a, mm-hmm. a, a long time. Um, you know, you lose a case and you think you're right and it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's especially frustrating when it's not just, you know, money that, that, that's up for grabs for your client, but right. it's actually potentially their life. Their life. Right. And, you know, I'm not, suggesting that a better lawyer would have gotten a different outcome. I think that the, we were in a, we were in a tough spot. The evidence that um, existed at trial was very strong. Um, and, and, and I don't know that any other lawyer would have gotten a better outcome than I did. Mm. Um, but I, I, that was always heavy on me. And so as I stayed kind of abreast of the case, I was always, um, you know, that was something that, that was of a personal interest right. because I felt a sense of responsibility right. um, as, as, a, as a lawyer. Um, in the last two years or so, there's been a new push for DNA testing. And in fact, um, Purvis Payne's current legal team was able to get that DNA testing ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, the Innocence Project offered to pay for the testing. Um, the state still um, opposed it. They mm-hmm. did not want to do the testing. Um, but testing was ordered on several items, although, um, several other items were destroyed in the interim. They had been destroyed in a fire. Or they had been lost. There was no accounting for them. So there, the, the testing part of it ended up at least partially getting done, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years after my involvement in the case. Mm-hmm. Circle back you referenced earlier the Innocence Project. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that organization is and what they brought to this case um, and, and their involvement with it? Sure. 
Um, the Innocence Project, I, I can't speak precisely to when they got up and running, but they have made a significant cause out of reconsidering convictions. So a conviction review unit on some level. Um, and their mission is to identify defendants who have been wrongly convicted and may be sentenced to death, but not exclusively individuals who have been sentenced to death and um, bring the evidence, help pay for the testing of the evidence, help with the legal support for these individuals who are in prison to win exonerations. And in several high profile cases, they have had individuals who had been convicted and were facing a death sentence, not just have the death sentence removed, but actually exonerated and released from prison. Um, and the belief is that, you know, sometimes the criminal justice system gets things wrong. And that could be for all sorts of different reasons, but whenever it happens, it must be corrected. And that is the sort of mission of the Innocence Project. And so um, Purvis Payne's legal team uh, connected with the Innocence Project based on his repeated claims of his own innocence in this, in this particular case. Um, and the Innocence Project has been involved in advocating for the DNA testing, which I mentioned earlier, um, they offered to pay for that testing so mm -hmm. that it would be a cost of the state. Um, and also, I, I think it has to be stated that this isn't just a legal case in the sense where the questions are strict legal questions, but rather this is uh, part of a broader campaign uh, in which there's an attempt to ensure that the public is aware of the danger of wrongful conviction and is advocating for you know, exonerations where they are appropriate. And so the Innocence Project in this case has done uh, you know, a really good job, not only in terms of the law, but also in terms of um, bringing the public awareness mm -hmm. to Purvis Payne's case, building a campaign um, of advocates who are supporting Purvis Payne's case. And so going back to sort of my involvement with advocating for a change in statute, those legislators are responsive to public pressure as mm -hmm. all legislators are and should be. Um, and so that really makes a difference when that kind of public advocacy is out there. And right. I think that in this case, the Innocence Project um, played, a, played a significant role in building that advocacy campaign. Well, it, I mean, it, it clearly worked, right? The, um, the legislation moved through uh, on a, a bipartisan level and, and was signed into law by the governor. Um, what happened after that? I was, uh, I was a little unclear on after that gets signed into law. Um, the Shelby County District Attorney's Office has some involvement with what happens or... Um, yeah, you know. so, so the, um, once the law is in place, mm -hmm. now the mechanism is there for anyone to bring a claim that they are intellectually disabled and therefore their sentence is um, inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, 
uh, Purvis Payne's legal team brought that claim using the using the brand new statute. Right. So they file like a a new petition. Exactly. Just like I had done Mm -hmm. um, back with the DNA testing under the new statute, the the they go back to the trial court and they Mm -hmm. say there's this new statute that um, allows us to make this argument. Um, They uh, petition for a sort of declaration of intellectual disability. Uh, It was again opposed by the by the Shelby County District Attorney um, and the judge ultimately ordered testing to be done. And mm-hmm. so um, this December, there was to be a uh, hearing, mm-hmm. essentially a trial, where the only issue was whether or not Purvis Payne um, was intellectually disabled and therefore ineligible for uh, the death penalty. In the interim, however, the there was testing done by, you know, this is the kind of situation where you bring in experts right. on either side. And so um, the Payne legal team had had a um, someone evaluate Purvis Payne's records, and the state also had someone evaluate Purvis Payne's records. And um, in November, the state's expert convinced the Shelby County DA that it was likely that Purvis Payne was going to be found intellectually disabled. And because of that, the Shelby County DA um, moved to revoke the death penalty and commute the sentence down to life without parole for Purvis Payne on the grounds that his execution under these circumstances would have violated both the Tennessee and federal constitutions. And so um, these claims that he was unable to make for so many years, um, as soon as he was given the ability to make the claim that he was intellectually disabled, he got the result that right. he had been thinking was likely, right. uh, that, the, that the law was actually on his side, that he was um, not eligible to be executed. So, and like you said earlier, to be clear, it, we haven't moved into the realm of, uh, whether he's exonerated, whether he's he's innocent or or guilty, we've just moved past the the being on death row phase and and established that it's unconstitutional for him to be uh, executed by the state. So now, I believe uh, next week or the week after, there's is there another hearing um, to establish whether he serves these terms consecutively or concurrently? Is that correct? Um, so what, what's happening, what's happening there? Yeah. So this removes the sort of ultimate in punishment, right? The irreversible punishment threat Mm -hmm. from Purvis Payne's case. But I think Purvis Payne's legal team would tell you it's not the end of the, it's not the end of the case. It has just removed that ultimate punishment from the equation. Um, and so the question now is about, so he has two, life sentences and one significant sentence. I can't remember the exact um, number of years for the murder convictions and the attempted murder conviction. And um, the question now is whether those sentences will be served consecutively Mm -hmm. or concurrently. And I know it might sound a little ridiculous to talk about life sentences served consecutively, but basically what it means is you are going to um, die right. in, in prison without any 
opportunity to not be in prison any, any longer. Or you could be eligible for parole with, with one of the options, right? Correct. So if they're served concurrently, that means that every day that he's serving um, any of the three sentences for the two murders and the attempted murder, he's actually serving a day for all three. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of saying first you'll serve for the first murder, then you'll serve for the second murder, then you'll serve for the attempted murder, you're actually serving all three concurrently at the same mm-hmm. time. And if that is the case, then I, I believe when he reaches a certain age, he will be eligible for parole, even though he has a life sentence. Um, at that point, the punitive uh, value of his continued incarceration under state law makes him eligible for parole. It doesn't mean that he's going to to get parole. It just means that at least he would have the opportunity to make the argument at that particular time. And so that's the sort of one part of this. Uh, The other part is the continued uh, efforts to make the claims of actual innocence that he he has been making. Um, Maybe uh, the governor has the capacity to Grant clemency. Mm. There are other things that could happen. Right. Is uh, the uh, the DNA avenue exhausted? Um, you know, I know you originally worked in that arena. So, um, do you think that there's subsequent subsequent avenues that they'll pursue in that, or is is that ex- uh, with over time with the the loss of some of the evidence, et cetera, et cetera? Is that? Yeah, avenue? I think that I think that the DNA evidence is probably exhausted in the court system. Mm. I think where it might be useful here is in a, is in a clemency petition to the mm. governor. Um, but I think that the loss of evidence and the, um, the court's conclusion that, that the evidence that wasn't lost was inconclusive in terms of um, proving Purvis Payne's claims, mm. even though there was a third-party DNA found in, right. in those items, um, I think that in the in the court system, it's unlikely to um, to be effective. Gotcha. But yeah, do you have any plans to to continue doing any scholarship around the this case or areas associated with the case? Um, you know, I have this book coming out on Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. in uh, in probably not next year, but twenty twenty three. Well, Thurgood Marshall's last descent as a justice was in this case Hmm. when Birch Porter argued it. And, um, and so maybe it's not worth mentioning at this moment, but like it's, it's not just that I worked on the case in 2007 and have been paying attention. It's also like not a central part of the book, but like I lead with this because Mm -hmm. this was the day before he retired from you know the 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 book i don't know if i've told you anything about it but it's it's focused in on the transition from marshall to clarence thomas Mm -hmm. in 1991 and um and so like the book kind of starts with thurgood marshall's last day as a justice and then the weekend following the monday following clarence thomas's introduction as a as a nominee and it's the pain case that is his last case so like it's not just for me it's not just that yeah i worked on the case and i've got to work on it you know some sort of advocacy in it in it as well but it's also that 
this case is a major part of my other scholarship. So what drew you to keep working on this case? And why is it important both to you, the community at large, and to the larger conversation regarding the death penalty? I think that I was drawn to this case in particular based on my work right. as, as a lawyer. Right. Um, I do feel that it's important if we're going to continue having the death penalty mm. that we ensure that the death penalty is administered in a way that is consistent with, um, you know, what the Supreme Court calls the evolving standards of decency. And um, my suspicion is that those evolving standards um, will continue to reveal new areas where it's just not appropriate to be punishing individuals in, in this manner. Um, for you know crimes committed as juveniles for individuals who have intellectual disabilities um, the idea in all of these fields is that an individual who is a juvenile when they commit the crime or are convicted an individual with an intellectual disability they don't have the same ability to participate in their own defense whether that's in their communications with their lawyers whether that's in their performance on the witness stand whether that's in their ability to describe how they were involved or not involved, um, their capacity to participate in their own defense is diminished. And it raises questions about their, you know, the, the sort of integrity of their trials. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a critical witness who is unable to participate in an effective way, then then it's a real barrier to, to finding like the truth, right? Which is what the trial is, is, aimed at, is aimed at achieving. And so I would like to see that kind of thing fixed, but I at least would like to see it fixed in a manner that we don't set individuals to death. You know, it's, it's a maze of a journey. And I think it's, this has helped, helped me kind of get a little clarification on on the timeline of things and everything associated with the case. Um, so, I mean, I think there's still, there's still parts of the journey left, right? So even in a week, we'll know more than we know today about where, what's going to happen with Mr. Payne. Um, so maybe that uh, we come back and, and discuss this a little bit further um, and talk about the implications of, of, of it, the case as it evolves. But I think it's, it's been interesting to talk about the, your history with it Um and the different, the different laws, both from a federal and state perspective that have come into play here. And, you know, the case had a lot of bad luck for a long time, but it's interesting to see things, the dominoes start to fall um, and to be where we're at today. So yeah, uh, I appreciate it, you taking the time to talk about it. Oh, I'm, ha I'm happy to. And I, and, you know, you use the, the phrase bad luck there and, you know, I don't want to, completely overlook the fact that at the beginning of this case, there is uh, a murder, right. you know, uh, two murders. And the, you know, we're talking about the ultimate in punishment, the victims of that crime are not coming back. Right. right? And, and the, the young person who survived is living a life without family members. Right. And those are significant things and should not, should not be overlooked. And a lot of times when we talk about the death penalty, we talk about 
you know, sort of retribution for victims. And here we are, you know, 35 years later, talking about this case still, and it popping up in the news. And as you just alluded to, there will be another question about serving consecutively or concurrently. Um, there's going to be continued effort to prove that the right per that that Purvis Payne is the right person. And, you know, as opposed to if Purvis Payne had been sentenced to life in prison in 1988, there has been this repeated every few years. It's in the news and the victim's family is reliving this over and over and over again. And so um, I don't want to overlook that that's difficult. Um, and perhaps made more difficult by the efforts to execute. I think that's a good thing to bring up because, um, you know, you drive around town, you see people um, supporting him on street corners with signs. You see um, multiple articles about it in various publications. And you, you have organizations like the Innocence Project, like you talked about, and uh, the efforts that they put forth to publicize things. Um, so when you see all of that attention and then you you know, just tangentially read the stories, you see that there's been success on his part. I think sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of uh, uh, thinking that more has been accomplished on the innocence or guilty side than it has just been on the on the examination of the law. So that's a good point. I think that's right. And I also think that the reason that this many years later, it's still in the news is because it's a death penalty case. Right. Um, from 1977 to 2017, there were 2,514 individuals in Tennessee convicted of first-degree murder. 192 of those were sentenced to death. So the vast majority of first-degree murder convictions do not involve a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And of those 192, um, more than half have been vacated right. or reversed in some way. So... Um, but the fact that it is the death penalty moves it into a different place in our society and it keeps the case alive. It keeps the urgency of the legal effort to um, you know, push back upon this sort of state sanctioned executions. It keeps that really high, the urgency really high there. And um, it really prevents closure. Um, on, on these kinds of cases. And while had Purvis Payne been sentenced to life in prison from the outset, it would not change the fact that he is continuing to claim his innocence um, and that that would still be important. That's important work to, to ensure that the people who are convicted are the, are the right people. Right. Um, but the urgency of it would be so different if this were not a um, if this were not a, a death penalty case. And so right. it just makes me wonder sometimes about even serving its retributive purpose if it is dragged out this long and made this public, you know, if that's, if that's helpful for victims. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think that's all the, all the time that we have. I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, it's been really interesting and keep... Uh, keep me abreast of any involvement that you have with it. And I'm, I'm sure uh, as things develop, it might be an occasion to have you back on the podcast and talk a little bit more about things. 
Sure. I'd love okay. to. 